You're listening to the sermon podcast from Real Life Church Pullman, reaching the world for Jesus, one person at a time. Well, you know that we're in this series, Journey to God, right? And we are working our way up the mountain, so to speak, to Jerusalem, as we're kind of traveling in the footsteps of the pilgrims that have gone before us as they return to worship in Jerusalem. They would sing these songs called the Songs of Ascent, and they're uh, psalms that help us remember and help us learn about who God is and what God's character is like and what God's nature is like. And as we learn about God, it helps us grow in our relationship and our dependence on him. And we're going to learn today that learning God's word, knowing who, God's, uh, who God is and what God's character is like is a critical ingredient when it comes to the stop on the journey today. Because the stop on the journey today is Psalm 130, and the stop is entitled Hope. And now more than probably a lot of times in most people's lifetimes, we're going through a season of really global hopelessness. Uh, They say the pandemic is coronavirus stuff, I would say more than ever, the pandemic that's really affecting the world is hopelessness. COVID and lockdowns and all of that stuff has really just revealed how fragile people's hope really was when the things get tough. And so um, one of the things we're going to learn in this psalm is that when you go through hard times, when you go through difficult circumstances, um, it does reveal a lot about where do we look? Do we have hope or do we not have hope? In fact, when we think about going through hard times, one of the phrases that people use is like, uh, like when you hit rock bottom. And if I was to say, hey, can you think of a time when you hit rock bottom? Can you think of a rock bottom season in your life? probably everybody watching, everybody in this room is already having memories pop up. You're already having things pop to your mind about like a time when things were really, really tough, really hard. And when you think about those times, they're oftentimes not seasons you like to go back and revisit. They're not stories that you are like, proud to tell stories. Sometimes they're self-inflicted, like the reason you were in the the pit that you were in is because you dug that hole yourself. Sometimes it's life, sometimes it's health, sometimes it's just circumstances that are out of your control. But one thing that's always true about a rock-bottom time or a rock-bottom season is that it's hard. And it starts to reveal really where we're at. And one of the saddest and most difficult things is when there are people that we love and we care about and we're watching them go through a season like that where we see someone else that we know and we care about kind of go through a a bottom of the barrel season or event and even more painful than that is when there are people that we love and we care about and they're going through those hard seasons and we feel like they're actually wrestling with hopelessness where we hear the things that they're saying, we see their actions, and we start to realize that they're giving up. They're losing hope, or they have no hope. And really, hopelessness is, is an idea that is sort of a picture that like, 
nothing could ever change. Nothing could ever get any better. When you are hopeless, you feel like life is what it is right now. Like your finances are never going to get any better. Your relationship status is never going to change. The heartbreak that you're experiencing is never going to go away. The uh, uh, depression and the pit that you're in, you're never going to be able to climb out of it. You, you start to feel these extremes. Like there is no possible way it could ever change or get better. That's really what hopelessness really is. And the hard part is that the, the, right now, with what we're living in and the world that we're living in and the things that are going on, hopelessness is really at an all-time high. It doesn't take much, much research right now at all to find out that already, early on, still as we're going through this COVID stuff and lockdown stuff, already... We're rapidly seeing reports of mental health problems. We're rapidly seeing reports of suicide rates increasing. I just read, probably some of you have read it, Japan has always struggled with high suicide rates as a culture. Uh, They've combated it heavily. and, And over the last year, in 2019, for the first time ever, they saw a decrease they're finally doing enough preventative stuff, putting enough resources in place to actually see their suicide rate, their suicide numbers decrease for the first time in I don't know how many years. In October only, because of lockdowns, because of COVID stuff. Nothing to do with COVID, to do with the consequences of COVID. They saw more suicides in one month than the entire year before. That is a result of hopelessness. And the psalm that we're going to get into today helps unpack kind of a a framework, if you will, for the antidote to hopelessness, which is really hope. A hope in Christ, a hope in a God who can come through, who cares, who shows up. And and how do you go from, from hopelessness to hope? And I think in this psalm, we're going to get uh, some ingredients or a framework. I'm not, I'm not going to say it's some magic formula because that's not it by any stretch. But there are some things we can learn as we dig through this psalm together that I think that would be uh, wise and helpful things for all of us as we're trying to cultivate a life, to cultivate a kind of faith that produces hope. There's some things we can learn from this psalm. So I want to read it to us uh, together, and then we'll kind of unpack it a little bit. It goes like this. It's Psalm 130. It says, From the depths of despair, O Lord, I call for your help. Hear my cry, O Lord. Pay attention to my prayer. Lord, if you kept a record of our sins, who, O Lord, could ever survive? But you offer forgiveness that we might learn to fear you. I'm counting on the Lord. Yes, I am counting on him. I have put my hope in his word. I long for the Lord more than centuries long for the dawn. Yes, more than centuries long for the dawn. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there's unfailing love. His redemption overflows. He himself will redeem Israel from every kind of sin. So, 
as we're going to go through this psalm, you're going to start to see maybe a framework or some ingredients to start to cultivate the kind of faith that will bear out hope as opposed to hopelessness. And right out of the gate, one of the things that we realize about the psalmist, and it's true in so many of the psalms, is there's this characteristic going on there. There's this, there's this behavior, this attitude towards talking to God going on that I think is really important that we grasp a hold of and we don't kind of overlook or miss because it's, a, it's an important detail. And I think a lot of us maybe kind of naively take it for granted or maybe just really haven't ever understood it. What's going on here is you've got a psalmist who is very real with God. And so I think that's an important ingredient for us is to get real with God. And when I say something like that, it's kind of a cliche kind of phrase, like, hey, it's time to get real. And everybody in the room is going to have a different definition of what you think get real means. And so I just want to dig into that a little bit. A couple of years ago, I was at a, a conference and was in a group with somebody, and they happened to, to say uh, this definition and talk about transparency and vulnerability and this uh, giving me some understanding of some terms to use about when I talk about getting real. And I learned some things from them that they, they had nothing to do with the conference. It had nothing to do with why I was there, but I took away this nugget from there and it was like, man, that one will carry with me forever because it was just so helpful to me to learn the difference and to learn some better ways to explain like really getting real with somebody. And so there's a couple of words that we're real familiar with and we use a lot, transparency and vulnerability. And transparency is like this. Transparency is like if you have the windows open on your house or your apartment and you let somebody walk by outside on the street and they can look in, that's transparency. They can see in a little bit. They can make some guesses about what's going on in there based on what they see or the behavior. They might even stand and watch for a while. It's a little weird, okay? I wouldn't recommend that. Don't try and be transparent with other people that way. This is just an analogy. Uh, so, so they can look in and they can see a little bit, right? Now, vulnerability, on the other hand, is a whole bunch different. Vulnerability is open up the front door, let somebody into your home, into where you live, and get this, open up all the doors and say, hey, you have free access. Look in any drawer, open the dresser, dig through the cupboards, do look anywhere you want and ask me anything. Let's talk. Everything's fair game. That's like maximum vulnerability. Now, vulnerability is not somewhere you normally start with people that are new and people that you're just getting to know. In fact, we've all probably been a little bit uncomfortable when we've met somebody and we don't really know them very well and they immediately open the front door and just like let us into the dresser drawers and we're like, ah, this is too much information. I barely know you. I do, this is, and you feel super uncomfortable and it makes you start to do the little like... Uh, I'm feeling an emergency. Come on, walk backwards. You're trying to escape because you're like, too much, right? Vulnerability is not where we start with people. 
transparency is a safer place to start with people. You, they, we let them see in a little bit, right? We open a window or two. We kind of let them in a little bit to our life, and we start to get to know them. And then over time, you begin to develop relationships with people, and you choose wisely a select few or one or two people to be really vulnerable with. And they, that changes at seasons in your life of who is really all in in your life. Now, that's how it works with people. The thing is, with God, it's almost the opposite. Because if we go to God and, and we start with transparency and we sort of we sort of go like, God, I'd like you to stay out on the sidewalk. I'll open the kitchen window in the morning and you can look in the living room window in the evening, but I'd, I feel more safe if you're just out there. When we think about a relationship with God where transparency is the the framework, it, it sounds a little bit mistrusting, like we've got him at arm's length. And what the psalmist is modeling for us in this psalm and so many others that we've read is vulnerability with God. Like something about letting God in, being totally open, giving God full access. So one of the first things we see, and one of the first things that I think is an important ingredient to this kind of framework of a life that, that cultivates faith, that bears out in hope, is it, it, part of it is going to be having a, a relationship with God where he's got full access and you give him full access and you're vulnerable with him. Like you're letting God in and saying, open up any drawer, open up any cupboard, look in anything, read anything you find. You can have my email password, my, all my social media passwords. You can read it all and then let's talk. That's vulnerable. And that's this picture that we get with the psalmist. They lay it all out there. They're totally real with God. The thing that's cool about and comforting about being real with God is that we can know that we have a God who has been where we've been, who has faced the things that we've faced. And it's important that we go back to God's word and we get reminded about who God is and what he's like. It's important that we get reminded today, it was important that the readers of, um, of Hebrews were reminded about who God is and what God's been through. In Hebrews 4.15, it says, this high priest of ours understands our weakness for he faced all the same testings that we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There will we, we will receive mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. You see, the cool thing is being vulnerable with God isn't just about laying out our struggles, like telling God how bad we have it or how hard it is. Like That's part of it, but it's also about being comfortable to be real with God about all the stuff, even our part. To be real with God about our mistakes and our sin and our stuff that we've messed up, the, the places that we're struggling. And it's a lot easier to do when we remember that it's not about being perfect for God. It's not about earning his forgiveness or his grace. Um, we remember that everybody sins. 
And it's easy to say that, but I think a lot of times we can easily get our, um, our, how we measure how comfortable we are with God gets wrapped up in this comparison stuff that we do with other people. Because we can say in our minds, we know that everybody sins, we know that's true, we know what God's word says, but when it really boils down to it, what we end up doing is we start to look around and we find somebody to compare ourselves to, to decide if we really feel comfortable talking to God about our stuff or not. And all of a sudden, someone else is the measuring stick for if we're good or bad, if we're doing it right or doing it wrong. And I tell you what, I don't know about you, but I think I'm 100% correct, is that we all always try and find somebody that is a lot shinier, that's a lot more polished up. They're the doing it right person. You don't know if they are or not, but they just look like it from the outside. And you sort of make assumptions about where they're at and how they're doing. And, and other people become the standard by which you look to to decide if, if your sin is worth talking to God about or not, or if you should feel bad about your sin. And you start to gauge whether or not you're doing good as a Christian or doing bad as a Christian based on how other people are doing. And it's so easy to get on this slippery slope where where we're starting to measure and qualify and decide how we're doing based on the wrong criteria. It's important that we go back to God's word. It's important that we are reminded that we all mess up. There's a reason Paul penned the words to believers in Rome to remind them that everybody sins. I want to read them. It's words that a lot of us are really familiar with, but Romans 3.23 says, Everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. You see, one of the things we're learning as we kind of dig into this psalm a little bit is it starts with getting real, being vulnerable, being okay to just lay it all out there. And not in just this psalm, but so many that we've read, we see that modeled. And then the psalmist writes that they have this confidence that God forgives and that we can learn from God's forgiveness. It made me wonder if the psalmist probably knew the words to Psalm 103. And I think they're important words for us to remember today too. It says in Psalm 103 verse 8, The Lord is a compassionate and merciful, slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love. He will not constantly accuse us, nor remain angry forever. He does not punish us for all our sins. He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. For his unfailing love toward those who fear him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. He has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. So we're getting this picture of a, of a God who is slow to get angry, quick to forgive. Isn't it God who holds a grudge? And holds our sin against us. And as we dig into God's word and we remember that everybody struggles with stuff. Everybody battles with sin. And yet we have a God who's made a way for us to be forgiven. And that we have a God who is eager to forgive. 
We're starting to cultivate our faith to help us grow our faith in a way that's going to produce hope in a season of a lot of hopelessness. Psalm 130 has these words near the end. It says, I'm counting on the Lord. Yes, I'm counting on him. I have put my hope in his word. I long for the Lord more than centuries long for the dawn. Yes, more than centuries long for the dawn. Now, these are the words of somebody that really knows themselves and knows God, right? They're being real with God. They're being vulnerable. And yet they have the confidence to say that they can count on God. I'm counting on the Lord. Yes, I'm counting on the Lord. There's this thing going on in, in here, this, this confidence that's being displayed in the words of the psalmist. And then there's these words that probably to a lot of people you've read this psalm or maybe today is the first day you ever read it and you heard it and you read this deal and it says that, he says that I'm longing for the Lord like centuries long for the morning. Another more modern way to say it is like a person that's working the graveyard shift can't wait for morning. I don't know if you've ever pulled an all-nighter or had to work graveyards. One thing that's true of everybody that's ever had to work a graveyard shift is you look forward to morning. You're tired. It's dark. Night seems to be a whole lot longer when you have to stay up through all of it. One of the things I think that's really neat about this analogy that's kind of weaved into this psalm is the way he's talking about it. The psalmist is familiar with not people working graveyards. The the graveyard shift that the psalmist was familiar with was a night watchman, a sentry, that stood and watched over like perhaps a city gate to protect the inhabitants against people that would come against it through the evening, someone that could stay alert and stay on guard. And what they knew about the person that worked that shift and worked that post is the one thing they always looked forward to was morning. Now, the thing I think that's cool about weaving this part into the psalm is there's something about it that's really neat, is a person that works a graveyard shift or a night watchman guarding a gate, you know one thing they don't ever have to worry about is that morning actually comes. They never are staying up on the graveyard shift going, man, I hope morning comes. What if it doesn't? What if today's the day the sun doesn't rise? Nobody, nobody worries about that. There's just this concrete, intuitive, firm belief that morning's coming. Now, you may be tired, and some nights may be longer than others, and you may feel like this night's dragging on forever, right? This is a long wait. We've all experienced that, but, but nobody doubts morning is coming. And I think it's cool that the psalmist uses this imagery, this picture, to help us get an idea of what their relationship with God is like. The psalmist is saying that, that they're so solid in their relationship with God. They have such confidence in God's word that, that they are expecting God to show up just like a night watchman is expecting morning to come. There's just no doubt 
They know God so well, and they know God's character so well, and they know how God behaves and how God's interacted and how God cares so much that, that they're as confident that God will come through as the graveyard shift worker is that morning will show up. And I think that's pretty cool. That comes as the, the person puts their hope in God's word. As we put our faith and our trust in God's word, we start to develop a relationship with God that deepens and grows. And as our relationship with God deepens and grows, there's this safety about being vulnerable and being totally real with God and this realness with God of letting him into every part of our life and being honest with him and talking through things with the Lord. It deepens again our relationship with God. And as we go back to God's word, we know more about who God is and what he's like and how he's behaving in the past, and it builds in us this confident trust that bears out in our life like hope. Like no matter what circumstance we're in, no matter what trial we're going through, no matter how this stuff is affecting us, we have something that, that we hang on to that it becomes so second nature to us we're so comfortable and confident that God's coming through that it's, it's no different than knowing morning will come tomorrow. And in a time like this right now where there is so much hopelessness going on, so much stress and strain and uncertainty and, and unknowns about what's next and how it's going to happen and what about this and what about that and all of the politics and everything else going on and the way it's affecting people's livelihood and jobs, there is so much effect on everybody to be a person who in the midst of all that has this confident hope that as far as you're concerned and your relationship with the Lord, you know that you can count on God. Let me tell you what, you are going to stick out for the right reasons. You're going to be a person that people are drawn to because people are going to be desperate for hopeful people. People are going to need the body of Christ to be a beacon of hope in some pretty hopeless times. So before we finish this morning, I want to give us a chance to just stop and um, just pray for a couple of things. We're going to pray for two things. In all of our home groups and small groups, we always do, we kind of go over some guidelines and we talk about um, things to kind of set our group up for success. One of the things we always talk about is using I statements. It's really common when you get a small group of people together and we start talking about stuff, people will sort of talk in the third person or they'll talk like they should work on this or the church should do that. And we sort of like safely talk about hypotheticals. And one of the things we do in our groups is we say, nope, we nix that. Only I statements. So if you're going to share, you say, I should work on this or this is something I'm feeling really convicted about, right? So I want to give us a chance to do that right now, to kind of practice, to just get real with the Lord. Talk to God about where are you at with your vulnerability with him? Like, what? think about the, the house analogy. Is, is God have full access to your house? Is there spots you're keeping off limits? What's going on with that? Let's just start there. Just kind of having a real heart-to-heart with the Lord. So I want to give you a minute. Let's go ahead and talk to the Lord now.
The next thing I want us to pray for is just people that we know who are battling hopelessness, that are just feeling stressed out. I think probably everybody watching, everybody in this room knows somebody who is feeling pretty hopeless. It doesn't really matter that much why they're there or how they got there. Maybe they dug their own hole. Maybe it's life. Maybe it's health. Maybe it's a family member thing. That's not our part. Our part is to lift them up, to pray for them. I, I want to remind you that in the, the story we have from God's word where the four friends grabbed the paralyzed guy on the mat, they drug him up on the roof. We're all familiar with the story. They dug a hole. They lowered him down to Jesus. When it was all said and done and the dust settled and everything cleared out, Jesus said it was their faith that healed this guy. There's something about you boldly bringing your request to the Lord on behalf of people you love and care about and having the faith that your hope, your confidence in God, something about that transfers. And so I want to give you a minute to just lift up people you know who are struggling and are hopeless. Let's go ahead and pray for them right now. Well, this morning we're going to finish with communion. So if you've got your cups, go ahead and grab those and get your elements out. If you're watching from home, this is your cue to grab your elements for communion. And I just want to encourage you that I know a lot of people are still watching from home and um, just make sure you're doing this with us. Don't, don't just get to this part of service and go, okay, it's over and it's time to put the computer down or turn it off and go back about your business. I want to encourage you to follow through and pause and make this a priority. Every week we do this as a family, and it, it's, it's the reason that we have hope. We have hope that our mistakes can be forgiven, our sins can be forgiven, moved away as far as the east is from the west. That, that's made possible because of what Christ did for us. We have a, a God who made a way for us to be forgiven. We say that a lot. It's a very Christian phrase. And I think sometimes some of those things, you can hear them so many times, they sort of lose their sensibility. Like, what exactly does that mean? And I want you to think for a minute like about God as a dad. We have a, a, a father God who's like a dad that is awesome. But like kids often do, sometimes we blow it when it comes to dad stuff. And sometimes we, we do things wrong. Sometimes we know they're wrong and we do them anyway. Like let's say you went to dad's toolbox and you know it was off limits, but you took stuff out, used it, broke it, hid it, and didn't put it back. And he found out. And you sheepishly suck it up and apologize. Like I knew it was wrong when I did it, but I did it anyway. And you just have to look him in the eye. We have a, a dad in God who forgives us. And not only forgives us,
But when it's over, it's over. You'll never hear the toolbox story come up around the family table. He's done with that one. You're forgiven. That's what we have available to us because of what Christ accomplished on the cross. And that's what we remember every week when we take communion. We remember that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he gave thanks for it. And he said, this is his body that was broken for us. So let's remember the body of Christ as we take the bread. In the same way, he took the cup after supper and he said, this cup represents a new covenant which is sealed with the forgive or sealed with the blood of Jesus. And so as we take the cup, we remember the shed blood of Christ. Let's pray. God, we just thank you so much for your son. We thank you for his example and his leadership and just living a life that we can follow and look up to. Thanks for your word that we have so much of your story recorded that we get to know so much about who you are and how you've dealt with your people and and enemies and friends and what happens when people get off the path and sin and what happens when people mess up and how do you deal with them and how do you help them and there's just so much that we can learn about who you are it gives us confidence that we can trust that you'll treat us the way you've treated others in the past God, help us to continue to to, uh, just increase in our hope evermore. We just pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us at rlcpullman.com and by connecting with us on Facebook. Until next time, have a great week.